Bible Interact is a group of Bible scholars and biblical archaeologists who promote the Hebraic nature of Scripture and view the two Testaments as one unified message. They explain how they use a first-century approach to searching the Scriptures, and they share their methods and discoveries for discussion and dialogue. They invite your comments and participation on BibleInteract.tv, where you can also find more teachings, self-study quizzes, webinars, and interviews. Shalom. I am Dr. Ann Davis with Bible Interact. Bible Interact is just a a loose collection of of Bible teachers and biblical archaeologists where we're all academics, we know each other, and we've decided that, well, why don't we just record our teachings and make them available, and that's what we've been doing. We started out with five of us. I think we're now up to eight uh, because we're growing uh, with the um, you know the television programs, radio programs, uh, seminars. We're, we're writing books and putting out DVDs and all that good stuff. We come from different denominations, but we all believe that Scripture is inspired and authoritative. We also believe, all of us, that in the Hebraic nature of the New Testament and that the two Testaments are intimately connected as one unified message. I recently published a book on Romans 9 to 11, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that now. The title is All Israel Will Be Saved, Paul's Midrash in Romans 9 to 11. The book is available on Amazon. And I want to talk a little bit about how I got into this study, which is kind of an interesting story. I My background is not steeped with church theology. Maybe that's one reason why God could tap me on the shoulder and and use me. Um, In a sense, I I have not a complete, nobody has a complete clean slate. None of us do. That's impossible. But I'm really not steeped in all that theology. I was brought up as a Unitarian in New Mexico, not in New Mexico, in New England. I came from New England. And the New England Unitarian is very different from what the Unitarian religion has become today, as I can see it. We were very interested, I was being taught as a child, in in the importance of a, the daily walk. Um, and um, Yeshua was considered a prophet, not the son of God. That's, and, but, and of course, I, I learned differently. And as I moved into my adulthood, um, I discovered Yeshua in a very wonderful, dramatic way. And my life has has uh, never been the same since then. But the point I want to make is that I came to this study of Romans 9 to 11 without a lot of uh, theological baggage. And that is a very positive thing. It's a, it's a blessing for me that, that, that I can approach my studies like that. Now, I did know that this these three chapters, Romans 9 to 11, are very confusing to the church. There are different interpretations. Um, I've heard some of the interpretations, and they, it makes me shudder. I just, I, intuitively, I know they're wrong. And so I approached this uh, study of Romans 9 to 11 and by using these ancient methods that I have recovered. And, um, you know, I tell people we have to think Hebrew, not Greek, because the church has developed Greek methods of Bible study that glorifies man, not God, because 
the, the Greek Western way says that we can come to the truth. We can arrive at the truth. We have the ability. Mankind has that ability. The Hebraic way is that, that there is a truth, of course, but it resides in God, and we have to stretch and get closer and closer to it. But these methods are based on the understanding that people did not have books. They learned the scripture as little children at home, and it was they, they, they learned it by they internalized it by memorizing, which is, is very different from what we do with, with reading. So they would hear all kinds of what I call linguistic devices. Now that's a modern term, but it, anything that was strange or startling would catch their attention. I mean, the, the simplest example is repetition. And repetition is not just for emphasis. Most of the time, it's the, the second time it's repeated, it's a little bit different. And in the difference, the ear would hear it. There's, there's some deeper meaning in that. And there's these methods. I mean, once you get into it, you, you, go, you become so different in the way that you, you approach Scripture and hear Scripture, and it leads you into the deeper meaning. So that's what I was doing in Romans 9 to 11, and in the book I'm explaining, you know, this is what I'm doing, this is the conclusion that I have drawn, this is why I have drawn this conclusion. Now, the the big question in Romans 9 to 11 is, who were the Jews? Now, Paul was writing to Jews in Rome, and that's very clear. In Romans 9 to 11, he's talking to Jews. He's not talking to Gentile believers. He's talking to Jews. The question was, were they believers in Christ or not? Now, you go on and you read Romans 9 to 11, and it's it's very critical. It's very harsh. And most people have concluded that these Jews were not believers, and, and Paul, in a sense, is condemning them, or he's giving them a chance to believe, and he's using this hard, harsh language to, to give them a chance to believe. You know, if you really become steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, which I have become in order to understand the New Testament, you'll recognize this as what I call the language of judgment. It's very stern. Now, it, it's for the purpose of instruction, not for the purpose of judgment or condemnation. And the Jews, this, they're, they're so, they were so used to this kind of language because they were steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures. So that's why it, it, it sounds condemning, but it's not condemning. I have come to the conclusion that these Jews were, in fact, believers in Christ, and I take the first two chapters in the book to convince everybody of that. Now, we're doing a lot more in the first two chapters, but that, that's the focus of the first two chapters, is to convince you that these Jews were believers in Christ. Now, another question that has to be addressed in Romans 9 to 11 is who will be saved. Because again, Christians have concluded that Paul is is using this very tough language because, you know, unless you believe in Christ, you're not going to be saved. And I I dispute that. I I do a whole chapter in the book on, on who will be saved. Or, no, I don't call it that. I call it two aspects of salvation. And um, if I have time, I might get into that a little bit. But let me just explain that the one thing that I knew about Romans 9 to 11 when I started this study was the halakhic midrash, because I have been working on halakhic midrash now for many years. And you'll see in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13, is a very sophisticated, complex construction of halakhic midrash. I mean, this is so typically Paul. And let me just stop and explain what halakhic midrash is. Midrash is is simply a, wor- a word that means to to dig into the depth of scripture. That's all it means. Uh, darash means to just to 
to dig into the depth of scripture. Now there are there are two methods of midrash, and halakhic midrash is to uncover something from the depth of scripture that no one has ever seen before. The people believed that God had placed everything in scripture that mankind would ever need to know, but he had hidden much in what they called they called the mysteries. And uh, but God, God would ca- cause these mysteries to come out in his time. There were methods of midrash to drawing these mysteries out, and the only ones who could do that were the ones who had a really deep heart um to to grow close to God. Um, Yeshua talks about the mysteries. You know, you can almost see him. There's a, a crowd that has come to hear him speak, and he says, "You know, to them I speak in 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 mysteries, um, but but to you it has been made available for you to know the kingdom of God." Now he's talking about the parables. So the the, the surface of the parables is what in Hebrew is called the pashat. It's the plain or simple meaning. You you can't replace the plain or simple meaning. You can't take it away. You can't replace it. But in addition to the plain and simple meaning, there's also this midrash. There's this deeper meaning. Now, the halakhic midrash is is a specific legal method that takes two verses that are legally and conceptually similar, similar. And from that, an analogy is conducted, not in the Greek Western analytical way, but in Hebraic way, it's just very different from the, from the Western, you know, analytical thinking. It's, it's very Hebraic thinking. So they, they conduct this Hebraic analogy from the two verses, and out of that, they draw the new understanding. Now, if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 9. If you don't have your Bibles, I'll explain it to you. If you're driving in the car, don't stop to read the Bible. <laughs> so in, um, in Romans chapter 9, um, in, in verse, it starts verse 6 is where the Midrash begins. But in verse 7, you'll see um, some capital letters, at least in, in some of the versions, the, the, a citation is capitalized. The words of Yeshua may be in red, but the citation is capitalized. So in verse 7, we see a citation, which is, Through Isaac your descendants will be named. Now, let, and, and then the next citation is, At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Those are two different quotations from the book of Moses, but they're legally and conceptually similar because they're about God's choice. God's selection. And by the way, Romans 9 to 11 is all about God's choice, not for the purpose of who's going to be saved, but for the purpose of who is walking in alignment with God so that that person can be chosen to be part of a remnant, which is a leadership position that is going to defeat Satan in the future. Now, I've taught on the remnant. And I, you know, I haven't really got time to go into it now, but Romans 9 to 11 is all about God's selection for who is going to be part of the remnant. And in these citations, you see God making a selection. He is selecting Isaac over Yishmael. Now, people say, oh, well, Yishmael was the son of a prostitute or a harlot or whatever you want to call her. You know, she wasn't, Hagar wasn't really Abraham's wife. Well, that is absolutely wrong. If you, you know, we have uncovered a great deal of information from tablets from Nuzi, the Nuzi tablets, um, in, I think, what is today, Syria. And either in Syria or upper Iraq, around in that area. And it has given us a great deal of information about the ancient culture. 
Hagar would have been considered a legal wife. Yishmael was considered the legal firstborn son. So by choosing Isaac, God was passing over the firstborn who was entitled to the special inheritance called the birthright and was selecting Isaac because Isaac was going to be worthy. By the way, all Jews are born to the birthright as God's firstborn son because we read in Exodus 4.22, Israel, meaning all the children of Israel, are my firstborn son. So every single Jew is born to the birthright. That's what scripture tells us. And... um and the relationship between God and his children is one of a father with his with his sons. They're all born to the birthright, the inheritance of the birthright, which is a special inheritance that gives a leadership role both in this life and at some time in the future. But, here's the but. Here's the however. The one born to the birthright had to grow up and prove himself worthy of that inheritance or he would not be entitled to the inheritance of the birthright. So every single Jew is born to the birthright, but every single Jew must prove himself or herself worthy of that inheritance to be part, to inherit the birthright. And I have, a, have identified the inheritance of the birthright with the remnant. Those who are qualified to inherit the birthright, which is a leadership position, are qualified to be part of the remnant. The remnant has that special leadership role to play. So what you're seeing here is you're seeing a halakhic midrash, and it's all about God's selection of who is entitled to inherit the birthright, and those are the ones who will be part of a remnant. This um, halakhic midrash continues. I love Paul. He just... It's amazing, and and there's so much in this Midrash that I explain in the book. I I just don't have time to explain it here. But let me just point out the other two verses. In in, uh, uh, in, Romans 9.12, we read, The older will serve the younger, and that's a citation, that's a quotation. The older is Esau, Esav, who will serve his younger brother, uh, Jacob, Yaakov. So again, God is making a selection. Esau was entitled to the birthright, but it was given to Jacob, who was worthy to inherit that birthright. And the next um, citation is, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, we have assumed incorrectly that God did not love Esau, and therefore he you know, flushed him down the toilet. That's not true at all. If you go into the story of Leah and Rachel... The two wives of Jacob and Leah was, you know, fertile and had all these children and Rachel was barren. It says that Leah was unloved where Rachel was the one whom Jacob loved. So unloved does not mean that the person is is thrown out of the family. It doesn't mean that at all. It it has to do with um, God's selection of 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 the ones who are are walking in righteous ways that's what the purpose of the law is, so we can learn to walk in righteous ways all right and uh now this midrash is is at the beginning of Romans 9 to 11 and it it sets the tone for the entire three three uh, uh chapters because all of Romans 9 to 11 in my humble conclusion is about God's selection of who will be part of the remnant. And Paul is talking to Jews, and he says, look, you're not all going to be part of the remnant. You're not all going to to um, inherit the birthright unless you get your act together and start walking in righteousness. You're going to have to get your act together. 
And then at the end, he says, however, if you are not part of the remnant, you will still be with God at some time in the future. And that's what that all Israel will be saved. All the children of Israel, even though not all will inherit the birthright to be part of the remnant, they will all be with God at some time in the future. And, you know, the book goes on to explain this. Now, um, let's see, I wanted to just give you part of my story here as to how I really got into this whole concept of the remnant, which led me to Romans 9 to 11, and and how I got into the this whole study of a halakhic midrash. I just, it's part of a story, and I'm going to tell you the story. It's part of my personal story. I was in Galatians, and if you have time to turn, if not, I'll just read it to you. But I was in Galatians, and I was working on, uh, let's see, it's going to be Galatians um, 5, no, where am I? I'm in the wrong book. Hold it. Let me get in. Oh, here, here Galatians. It's in Galatians 4, 20, uh, let's see, 24. Galatians 4.24, Paul says, I am speaking allegorically. All right, the Greek allegory is like the story of the tortoise and the hare. Remember, the hare can run real fast, and the tortoise is slow and methodical. The hare was overconfident. The tortoise won the race. The Greek allegory is a fictional story with a moral message. We have concluded that Paul is talking about Hagar and Sarah in this allegory, and it's just like a Greek allegory. It's a fictional story with a moral message. Wrong, 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 and wrong. This this was actually part of my PhD dissertation, and I was able to show from ancient writings that the the Hebraic concept was to startle the reader with something very strange and puzzling, which gave clues to lead the the reader into the Hebrew scriptures to uncover for himself or herself the depth of meaning. Now, this is the difference between the Greek way of teaching and the Hebraic way of teaching. The Greek way of teaching, the teacher is the authority, stands up in front of the students, talks down to the students, and the students have to repeat back on a test what the teacher has told them. Same thing happens on the pulpit in church. The Hebraic way is that the authority is in God. And the role of the teacher is to lead you to God. You don't elevate the teacher. You elevate God. In fact, the teacher is only a good teacher if the teacher is completely humbled. (laughs) And I tell my students, I am not successful as a teacher unless my students exceed me. Um, And so, so what Paul is doing, he's not saying, I'm the authority, I'm going to give you all the answers. He says, I'm not going to give you any of the answers. I'm just going to give you clues, and you're going to have to roll up your sleeves, and you're going to have to uncover the answer for yourself. That's the Hebraic way of doing it, which is why the Hebraic way of teaching is to ask questions, to ask a lot of questions, not necessarily to give the answers. What follows the question is discussion, and the discussion helps get closer and closer to the truth. There's that joke about, you know, you get two Jews and three opinions. Well, this is all very healthy. 
you know, the, you, you dialogue, you discuss, you debate, you, you know, sometimes they'll get in each other's faces. <laughs> and But the purpose is to get closer to God. That's the whole purpose. And that's what this allegory is all about. So, for example, you get, um, let me show you what's, what's some of the things that are strange and puzzling. Okay, well, you, you all know what a symbol is. A symbol is one thing that stands for another. So wine stands for or represents the blood of Christ. And you can see that symbol because wine is a red liquid. Blood is a red liquid. So you can say, you know, drink this wine. This, this is my blood. You know, drink this wine. And that's a symbol. It's a recognized relationship between two words that are different, but the relationship is very easy to see. You know, this wine is my blood. Now, a metaphor is a symbol, but it is what's called an extended symbol. It goes beyond an easy relationship to something that is literal and, and is very, um, art, it's very artistic. That's, that's the way I describe it. It's very artistic. It goes beyond the literal. Um, when you say, you know, a mighty fortress is my God, you've got a symbol. God is a mighty fortress. But it's a metaphor, it's an extended symbol, because you get a picture of a castle with big stone walls, and it's not an immediate relationship. You have to stop and you have to think about it. That castle is, is, is very strong and nobody can come in and get you. You're safe in the castle. God is a mighty fortress. It means that God has like a shield of protection around me. He protects me. I'm safe with God. And you have to stop and ponder the meaning of a metaphor. Now, what happens in our allegory is that you stop to ponder the meaning of the metaphor, but it's impossible to get any meaning. Paul has, has created metaphors that make no sense. It's a, it's a metaphor. It's an extended symbol. But there's nothing in Scripture that you can relate to to give it any meaning. For example, it says here, th there are two women, all right? There's Hagar and there's Sarah. And they represent two covenants, all right? Now, okay, two women represent two covenants. Stop. Can you, can you get an association there? No, you can't. Hagar and Sarah represent two covenants. It, in Scripture, it, you, you can't get a relationship. And then he goes on and he says, Hagar is Mount Sinai. Well, Hagar is Mount Sinai. It's a symbol that's extended as a metaphor, but there's no meaning in it. You, you can't get a meaning. There's nothing in Scripture that gives the meaning. And, and I think it goes on. Let's see. Hagar is, represents present Jerusalem. It, it doesn't make sense. Present Jerusalem is that Jews are descended from Sarah, not from Hagar. And and it doesn't make sense. It's and and it's done on purpose to make you curious, to get you in. And now there are more clues. The big clue in here is in uh, verse thirty. And it's it's a quotation. The son of the bondwoman shall not now the son of the bondwoman, the bondwoman is Hagar, her son is Yishmael, alright, the firstborn, shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Heir means inheritance. This whole allegory is about inheritance. Who is going to inherit? What are they going to inherit? What is Israel going to inherit? This led me back 
into the Hebrew Scriptures, which is obviously where you have to go. The New Testament hadn't been written. And, and it led me to Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn son, and that led me to the concept of the birthright, that all Israel is born to the birthright. This allegory led me to that information, and I was able to do it because I understood the Hebraic way that Paul was teaching, and I could get back into the Hebrew Scriptures and follow his clues, and that's and that's what he was doing. So let's return now to the Midrash in Romans. Um, in, in my book, I... I think I do a pretty good job of explaining this Midrash and of explaining how the Midrash in Romans is all about God selecting the one who is worthy to inherit the birthright and those who are worthy to inherit the birthright will be will be selected by God to be part of the remnant. And so my conclusion in Romans 9 to 11 is, is that it is written to Jewish believers it is not telling them that they better believe in Christ or else they're not going to be saved. It applies to Gentile believers as well because we have not been born to the birthright, but the selection will occur with Gentile believers. The question is, who is in Christ? In Christ means you are walking as Jesus Christ walked. It's the same requirement for the remnant of the Gentile believers as it is for the Jews. And um, if you want the book, you go to Amazon.com. And it's, uh, let's see, All Israel Will Be Saved, Paul's Midrash in Romans 9 to 11. With that, I wish you shalom.